Friends, welcome to this episode of Leadosophy. You're here with an open mind because that's the rule, not the exception. Great interview coming up here with Cadet First Class Dylan Roberts of the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. Cadet First Class is military slang for a senior, senior in college. Dylan has some fascinating ideas about leadership. He's developed a leadership framework. We talk about followership and the importance of followership earlier in your in your academy career and transcending through through leadership up into your senior year. And then going back and forth between leadership and followership. We talked about his his path into the Coast Guard Academy, which was not necessarily an easy one. And Dylan really opens up about that. Talk about life, leadership, philosophy, psychology, kind of hit all kinds of different facets. So I hope you like this interview coming up just over an hour. Here we go. Are you ready to permanently fuse leadership and philosophy? Then a word of caution, you are about to enter the fully abstract yet wholly concrete realm of leadosophy. Our ideas are not always so clear and distinct. To validate this proposition, we welcome the host of Leadosophy, Tim Wood. Okay, welcome to Leadosophy, the Leadosophy podcast. I'm here with Dylan Roberts. Thanks, man. Yeah, Dylan is here with an open mind because that's the rule, not the exception. That's how I start all my podcasts, Dylan, by the way. <laughs> Little background about Dylan. Dylan is a senior at the Coast Guard Academy, or for military term, first class cadet, right? Yes, that's correct. Twenty-seven days from billing night and one hundred and three days from graduation. Not that I'm counting. So, many of our listeners may not have an idea about military or Coast Guard stuff. So, explain billet night, and then I'll go back into the intro. What's billet night? Absolutely. So billet night is going to be the night that my entire class finds out their selections. Uh, starting in November, this slate comes out and it's 260 picks. And then you basically create your dream list of the top 40 or 50 that you want to go go to. And um, on billet night, you get your selection. You go up on stage and uh, there's a big screen behind you. Your boat comes up or if you go to flight school or do cyber, and then they tell you to open your billet and in front of everyone that's live, live stream, you find out where you're going for your first tour. That's pretty awesome. And obviously different this year with COVID. Normally this would all be an all hands event. Everybody would be in person, right? A huge event. This is a big deal. So usually actually all the commanding officers will be there and typically they'll give you a cover. So the first hat for your, uh, for your unit and uh, they'll be there to congratulate you. But they won't be there this year. Uh, we're looking to have it in person because at the academy right now, we're all in a ROM status. We're restricted on movement. So we haven't been going out on Liberty or anything. And we're getting- So you're restricted to the base right now? I am, yes. Our entire okay. our entire core is restricted to the base. No Liberty uh, whatsoever right now. Man, nothing like restricting a bunch of college college <laughs> people to, to confined space, right? It's an experience. Yeah, for sure. Dylan, you are you were born and raised in Maine. I was, yes. Yeah. So born in Portland, Maine. Uh, I went to that's, that's Vermont, but I have a moose on there. State animal, I believe, for for Maine. I actually, I uh, I went on a moose hunting trip one time. I got a moose when I was thirteen years old. No kidding. Crazy story. Um, but born and raised Portland, Maine. I went to Cape Elizabeth Middle School, high school, 
and uh, been there my whole life. And we're going to get into a little bit of your, your story, kind of how you ended up at the Coast Guard Academy. You are, what do you make business and finance, right? Is your, is your major, your background? Yes, or what do you want uh, to it's technically management, but with a focus in business, finance, accounting, and then organizational behavior and leadership. Right. That, that's awesome. And I read, you sent me some, some stuff on your bio. Your father was a firefighter. He was. Yeah. So my dad, uh, Dan, he was 35 or 36 years as a firefighter basically his whole life um, with a, within the same department, ended up finishing as the chief. And so that was pretty cool to watch. He, uh, he always did 48 hours, 24 hours on, 48 hours off. Um, so didn't get to see him for a day and then I'd see him for two days nonstop. But uh, he was all about service. And then my, my uh, older brother went to Maine Maritime Academy. He's currently an army ranger in the 75th out of Savannah. And, uh, I was going through high school at the time that he was at Maine Maritime. So just seeing what he was doing on military academy too. Sure. Sure. So your, your parents still live in Maine, right? They do. So right now they actually, they sold our house, the one that I grew up in and they live at Shawnee peak. Uh, so they moved into our camp. My dad built it himself when we were younger and my dad's retired now. And my mom is currently teaching at Lake region middle school, which is pretty awesome. That is awesome. What, what does your mom teach? Um, so my mom teaches math and science, and she actually was at Holy Cross, which is where I went to elementary school, Catholic school, and she was a language arts teacher there. She worked for Hannaford Brothers. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Didn't like it, followed her career, followed her passions, went back to school to become a teacher, and she's been teaching now for eight or nine years. That's awesome. That, great stuff, man. I I reached out to you a week and a half ago, I read, I was reading your, your leadership framework on LinkedIn. And that was my first, it was the first time I'd read one of your articles. And then I reached out and said, Hey, you want to come on the lead, leadosophy podcast? And, and you agreed. I, I'm very grateful that you wanted to do this. And you pointed me to some other stuff that you had written. And it was, it was deep. I remember I was, I woke up one morning, I, I got the email from you and I was reading this article on LinkedIn on some of the mental health side stuff that you'd, you'd been dealing with and you went open, you were public about it and put an article on LinkedIn. And I remember I was reading this article, man, and it, I was, it struck me. I, I was very, I was very intrigued by what you'd written and, and, and the fact that you were willing to put yourself out there, man, that was, that was huge. That was a huge step, obviously, for you to do that. So do you want to talk about kind of your lead up to, to the Coast Guard Academy? Because a lot of people maybe have not read it. They don't know your story, how you ended up in the Academy and the the difficulties or the barriers you had to overcome to get to the Academy. It's all you. Absolutely. So I always knew that I wanted to serve in the military. I wasn't sure what branch. I remember when I was younger watching Black Hawk Down and just feeling that, you know, I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to do something. And then... Going into my sophomore year of high school, I was definitely struggling with depression. Just thinking Maine in December, it's getting dark at 4 p.m. There's not a whole lot to do outside unless you ski or snowboard. Fortunately, I do. I couldn't during the week. And I was just going through a really tough time. And I had kind of no consideration at that point of how these decisions might impact my military career. But I made the decision that I didn't want to live anymore. And so on a November night, actually seven years ago, and this past November, I decided that I wanted to take my life. And um, I tried to strangle myself. I tied, um, I tied a sweatshirt around my neck 
and you know I was successful and thankfully for my mom she she was home and I texted my brother actually before I I decided that I didn't want to be here and I said you know I love you uh, thanks for everything that you do for me this was my older brother and uh, I kind of tipped him off but my mom came in my room untied the knots and uh, I ended up going to the hospital my dad was working actually part of the fire department and uh, got me awake got me conscious because I was unconscious at the time when my mom found me and um, I spent a week at a psychiatric hospital which is you know when I think back to it uh, for the longest time I try to keep that that part of my life to myself because I just didn't want to be a part of that stigma and I didn't want anyone to think of me differently and so for a little bit of time I was I was definitely struggling but I was I was getting stronger and I just I'd say the best part about it was that I learned a lot of coping skills and I I felt alone at first but once once I was able to go and even at the psychiatric hospital and just hear other people's stories that was kind of step one is hearing other people be vulnerable about their life and their struggles that they have it allowed me to feel like I could be open and talk about my struggles and just my depression and um, it's mostly seasonal but just to have that kind of open conversation felt good and then my parents uh, we were open to doing family therapy so being able to talk to them and that was kind of the toughest part because dad you know he's a really tough guy and not one to show emotions so when i was growing up i knew that i had to be tough and i couldn't show emotions so i kind of let that build in um but fast forward my junior year of high school, I played baseball and I was getting recruited by the Coast Guard Academy. And the coach sent me a message and wanted me to visit the academy. I did. And when I came here, I just fell in love because just seeing how the cadets acted, seeing how disciplined they were, how mature they were, I said, this is a college experience that I want. And so leading into my senior year, I applied to the academy and I found out that I got a conditional appointment. And so as with applying to academies and going into any military service, you need that Dobmerb exam. And so I found out in December of my senior year that I got a conditional appointment. And then it was actually in March when I was home that I got a letter. And basically they said, you know, thank you so much, but we can't bring you to the Coast Guard uh, for the following reasons. And that was my suicidal ideation. And that was for psychiatric hospitalization. And so in that moment, I was crushed because I didn't really have another backup plan. And I, I was, you know, fully focused on going to the Coast Guard Academy. And I thought, what am I going to do now? You put all your eggs in that basket, the, uh, the Academy basket. Yeah, I, I did. Well, and the thing is, too, is I found out in December. So had I not gotten accepted to the Academy in December, I still would have had time to apply to other schools. But I didn't really think of the impact of the medical exam in, in my past history whether or not that was going to affect me getting in. So when I got that conditional, I was like, I'm in, I'm accepted. I'm going to be going to the Coast Guard Academy. And then their medical department said, no, you're not. And I went all the way up to headquarters, which was just really sad. And that was something that, you know, I was at a crossroads because I really was determined on going here. And I basically had no path to go to the Academy. So the first thing that I did was I reached out to the Dean of Admissions at the Academy and he told me that they sent a lot of a lot of their scholars, the Academy has a scholar program to Marion. And he said you can go to Marion for a year. Um, but it's That's not Alabama, different. right? That's a military school in Alabama. It's in Alabama, yeah. Mar yeah. Marion Military Institute. They uh, they do a two year community college and an ROTC program. But uh, they also do a service academy prep program. 
So I said, you can go there. There's no guarantee that you're going to get into the academy or get your medical waiver. And, you know, I, I decided I'm going to take that risk because this was kind of for me to decide, you know, that this instance in the past isn't going to define who I am. And that was kind of the stigma that I was standing up for. And so I went to Marion, did an entire year down there in Alabama. And actually, while I was there, I applied to the Naval Academy and to the Merchant Marine Academy. And in that time frame of hearing back from the Coast Guard Academy, I actually got denied medically from the Naval Academy and Merchant Marine Academy. Both of them and, denied you. And both of them denied me from my medical waiver after a year of attending a military college. And so I was really, I was really down, but, you know, I just figured I need to keep moving and that I'm either going to move on and get over this or I'm going to let something you know, that happened when I was 14 years old, impact me for the rest of my life, which I'm not going to do. And then by miracle, I got a conditional, uh, I got a conditional waiver. So it's basically pending how I did during my swab summer here at the academy. And they gave me that temporary waiver and said, you're in, but it's, it's not permanent. So don't, don't get comfortable because we're going right. to be evaluating while you're here. And just the good news, good side of the story is we had our commissioning physicals this fall and I have a permanent waiver for commissioning. So I will be graduating and commissioning as a Coast Guard officer on May 19th. That's awesome, man. What a, what a just unbelievable story, man, up until now. How many, how many days till graduation? Do you know exactly? 103 days till graduation. Yeah. You guys are pretty much counting day by day. Well, it's almost getting down hour by hour, probably. It is actually this weekend we have a 101st night and then a hundredth day. This is where the, fourth class and the second class go through one day of kind of swap summer. And then the freshmen get to be the kings, kings of the academy for a day on Monday. And uh, we're actually, we're supposed to have a presidential graduation. So we might, we might have uh, Mr. Presidential, um, President Joe Biden. So that's pretty, that's a pretty, pretty amazing thing that's, that's happening. Uh, it's going to be interesting with the COVID stuff, how if it's, we're still going to be in the middle of it, or if we're going to be towards the tail end. I hope it's as eventful as it can be, given the circumstances. So let's, this is obviously, this is a leadership podcast and a philosophy podcast, right? So let's talk about, you wrote in the article about your story. You wrote about the stigma behind mental health. I work at a behavioral health clinic. Uh, so I see, I see that it's talked about a lot. And we're in a very remote rural area as well. So we have, you know, our own challenges. But from a leadership perspective, as you start your Coast Guard career here very soon, and you start going through the ranks, how will you lead through that? Because you may, you may have, you may be in a leadership role where you have people that are dealing with mental health issues, whatever. How do you want to see yourself as a leader through these, through that stigma, which is still there? I would say just upfront me being vulnerable um, because that was the first time this November when I wrote my story publicly. I never told anyone really, even my best friends when they read this, they were shocked. And the thing that surprised me was the amount of people that reached out to me, even strangers that told me their story, people that I didn't even know that, that just came up and uh, through email or through messages and, and shared the most vulnerable parts of their life. And I didn't know them. And so kind of what that means to me is that as a leader, if you can see vulnerability as a strength, then the people that you lead and the people that you work with are also going to see that vulnerability that they can share with you. 
because I found that people only want to go to the depth that you go to. And so if as a leader, you're not vulnerable with your people and you kind of don't share that personal side of you or those experiences, then your people can be struggling, but they're not going to want to feel that they can go talk to you um, and be personable. But just having that experience and being able to you know, share with one another, then that kind of forms a deeper and stronger connection. And if anything, I think through that vulnerability, there's just a, an added layer of respect. Um, and people, people feel that they can trust you and instantly you feel that, you know, they care and, and they know that you care. So having re read your leadership framework, your uh, teach, right? Teach is your leadership framework. The first, the T is, is trust, right? Trust and take care of. Trust and take care of. So I've, I've done a couple episodes on, on trust. I was actually interviewed last week on uh, one of my coworkers is going to, to school at Cornell and she was doing a leadership effectiveness interview and trust was the first three questions she asked me. How do you develop trust amongst your team? How do you develop trust from a, from a leadership perspective. And we talked about, I talked about as well about being, you have to be able to open up a little bit and everyone's going to be in you. I don't know if you agree with this, but everyone is going to be at different levels as far as how much they want to open up. Right. Some people are like to keep it very superficial in a work setting. Right. And then they go home. Like it's a, there's a very uh, solid line between the work life, home life type balance. So to be able to open up a, at least a little bit, and like you said, being a little vulnerable, I think you hit, I think you said something that's really profound that allows other people to see that and not be afraid to open up a little bit. And you agree that builds trust, right? Definitely. And I think uh, there's a quote, it's, uh, it's by John C. Maxwell. And the quote is that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that that kind of goes hand in hand with trust is when they know that you care, then there's that, that formation of trust. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I think trust goes, I think trust is very relationship dependent, but let's flip the script. Having been in the Coast Guard myself and now retired, I think there's another side of trust. And I think that's technical competence. Would you agree? I would agree. Yeah. So I know we talked about in your, in your, in your teach framework, credibility, right? You talked about credibility. And I think that's the personal side of developing relationships, but then there's, there's this technical side. You have to have that technical competence to start building that credibility. When, you know, when you start in any organization, you're new and it's, it takes a long time to build that credibility. But I found it interesting. You were talking about credibility. I like that. And you linked credibility to trust in your framework. So you want to talk about credibility and trust and maybe how they go together for you? Well, so one of the things, and not to, I mean, it kind of ties all together. Um, but where that credibility comes in is when I was growing up, I mowed bonds. And that was kind of how I did, uh, or that's kind of how I made money in high school. I didn't work a, an hourly job and made $9. I, I worked basically mowing lawns, snowblowing driveways. And my dad always told me never do a, a job, you know, halfway. He says, if you're going to do something, do it all the way through. Otherwise, don't even try and don't even start it. And that's kind of where your credibility comes from, because it's not going to be the things that you say, but it's going to be the things that you do. And people are going to notice that whether you think so or not. And so to be credible, it's not going to be by any of the words that you tell people. It's going to be your actions. And I think that's kind of where it goes in 
to the trust because it can be nonverbal. They're gonna they're gonna notice, especially when and I'm sure you can relate, but when I walk on board the first day as an ensign, you know, I'm gonna have to build their trust. And I can I can say that it's not gonna be by the things that I say, but it's gonna be how I present myself and you know, how I carry my demeanor. And I think that's kind of the credibility aspect of it. So let's stay there. You graduate here soon. Let's envision you showing up to your, to your new unit. You don't obviously know where you're going yet. What, what have you thought about this or, you know, how are you going to start building that trust? And we talked about actions, you know, is it, are you going to be seeking knowledge? You know, what, what are you looking at focusing on when you go to your new, your new job, your new unit as a new ensign? What are some things you're going to focus on specifically? Well, so I've, fortunately, I've had practice with this. As a third class, I went to a small boat station, Castle Hill, and I'm just seen as a cadet and someone that knows nothing. And then this past summer, I showed up in Miami Beach uh, at the Richard Etheridge. It's a fast response cutter. And so I kind of got to practice that. The first things for me was, one, asking questions. Two, even if you know something, don't tell someone you know it. Just be curious about it because nobody... Nobody wants to know it all. You know, I'm fresh in the Coast Guard and there's going to be people in the ranks that have been in the Coast Guard for 20 years. And so I think that's kind of giving people respect to and just thanking them for taking the time to show you. And, and I think part of it, kind of in terms of being humble too, is just let them explain themselves. Also, getting to know your people. Uh, something that I do, actually, I have a journal. And when I, when I meet someone new, I try to get to know them, know their family, if they have kids. Uh, something I'm big on is birthdays, so that when someone has a birthday, I always make sure to tell them happy birthday, because that's kind of how you can tell that someone cares about you. But I feel that it's not going to be about me, me showing up. It's going to be about how can I learn about them. And then that's kind of where the starting point is. And I know that a lot of people might not be exactly open to that, because the thing is, is I'm going to be replacing someone that's been there for two years that they really trust. So there's going to be a lieutenant junior grade leaving and I'm filling his position and they might have really liked him or her. And then they say, who is this new guy? And the only way that I think you can start building, building that relationship is getting to know them and just asking a bunch of questions and showing that you care and being humble and being really humble. That's kind of the, the main point. That's great, man. I, I think uh, you, I think you have the right frame of mind of, of just showing up with a sense of, wonder and curiosity and in eagerness, right? Just, you know, you have to get after it, you know, especially I, I've seen many of many ensigns come in into the new job and uh, it's a lot of work, man. I mean, I, I'm sure you know this, you guys have heard the stories. It's, it's a lot of work, a lot of probably running around like your hair's on fire. Um, but doing that with the smile on your face and staying positive and, and uh, like you said, perpetually seeking knowledge, seeking mastery of craft. I think that's really important. And, Sounds like you pretty much have that, that mindset ready to go. Let's talk about, uh, we emailed back and forth a little bit about followership, leadership, right? That dichotomy between the two. Do you believe that you're going to have to focus probably more on followership in the beginning than leadership? How do you see the, that dichotomy playing out in your first year or so in the Coast Guard as a new ensign? So I think one of the first things, and they, they uh, preach this at the academy, is get really close with your chief's mess and find your mentor, kind of between followership and leadership. 
because again, you're going to know a lot of people. And for instance, within the six, first six months, I'll probably be a division head. And with that, there's going to be people again that have been in the Coast Guard for a long time that have more knowledge than I do. And I'm their boss. Uh, and they report to me and I'm 22 years old and they're 45 years old. And so it's going to be the configuration of both. And does that intimidate you a little bit about going into a position where you're so much younger than someone, they may have way more technical competence, but you're still in a position of leading them. Does that, I guess, kind of open it up a little bit. Does that, do you have fear, anxiety about doing that? Uh, excitement? How do you feel about that? So I'm, I'm actually really excited. I don't have any fear or kind of stress about it. And the reason I say that is because I want to go in with that humble mindset because they're the technical experts. And so I'm, automatically going to be putting putting that trust in them that that they know what they're doing and i'm going to be asking them and i'm going to be relying on them and show and stand up for them and support them and i think that's kind of where it separates maybe being nervous or not being nervous is that you know i recognize and i'm cognizant that i am new here and they have more knowledge than me and i'm not scared to you know upfront say that and say i know that um, your department head when that time comes, but I know that you have the knowledge that I don't have and I need to lean on you for that. And that I hope maybe brings a sense of purpose to them and lets them know that, you know, I really care and I'm acknowledging the things that they know when they're time valued in the Coast Guard. Yeah, that's good stuff. And it's, you're going to be around a lot of, a lot of people with a lot of knowledge. And I think what I, when I look back on my Coast Guard career, Dylan, it was, being a small service. And like I said, I can only have a coast guard experience. I don't have any other services, but, uh, just that, that team dynamic, uh, not wanting people to fail. I've seen a lot of chiefs that will do whatever they can to, to help out the junior officers and, you know, make sure that they're part of the team. And, and I've just had a lot of positive experiences with that. So I think you, I think you're going to be in good hands wherever you end up going. Are you looking to, go on a on a ship what, what do you look at it doing what's your career path taking i am yes yeah. so i actually i put in for all deck watch officer billets i just like being up on the horizon being able to always see always see the sun and sunrise sunset that's the best part nothing against the engineers because we need them but i just sure. couldn't be down in the engine room um i like seeing the horizon and i find a lot of beauty in that so I put in for all 270s, 210s, and um, all on the East Coast, actually, from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, all the way down to Key West, Florida. I have no preference where I go. I think no matter what, the experience is what you make of it. So I'm just excited to figure out so that I can start moving forward with that process. And the reason I kind of want to set myself up in that way is I know that being on a 210 and a 270 you really have that chief's mess and you have senior officers that you get to that you get to learn from and then i think that that'll kind of set me up maybe for kind of more diversity and experience by just having such a, a larger crew so that maybe down the road i can also be like an executive officer or committing officer of a small boat because i would either like to go xo of an frc after for my second tour or command of an 87 but I got to make it through the first tour, obviously. But that's just something that I'm looking at right now, at least in terms of the timeline. 
Well, it's good. You got to have goals, man. Short-term goals, long-term goals. It's it's good to try to map out kind of what you want to do. Is there one Coast Guard mission? With Coast Guard, we have, obviously, there's many statutory missions we do. Is there one mission in the Coast Guard that kind of excites you more than others? Search and rescue, law enforcement. I know you did some stuff down on the Richard Etheridge. What do you like, what do you like to do in the Coast Guard? I think something that excites me is a search and rescue mission. And... Law enforcement is really fun because it's kind of an adrenaline rush as well. But even on the Richard F. Rich this summer, we repatriated over 90 migrants. But the reason that that excites me is because I look at look at it as solace, safety of life at sea. And knowing that even though they want to try to make it to the United States, that we're saving them because they're in these small boats that really can't float. And uh, one of them is summer it sunk and you know there's survivors we got there we got there pretty fast but um to just think that what about the boats that don't make it and then also just knowing that people trust the coast guard when the coast guard shows up on scene you know they're saying i'm safe now they're gonna save me and so it's just that part of doing the humanitarian mission that's what that's what really excites me and being in the coast guard yeah i think that's probably one of the biggest draws right? For people coming in the Coast Guard is being able to be in a position to, to save a life. I've always said, you know, long after retirement now, there is no greater feeling that I have ever experienced than saving a life. Bar not, there's nothing even close to it. And then on the flip side, when, when you're not successful, it, you know, it sucks. But that was probably the greatest experiences, especially when you do it in a team dynamic. You know, when you're, when you're saving a life as a boat crew, you know, obviously the, the air side, they get it too. But and when you come together, when a mission culminates with a boat crew and that teamwork and that leadership and the followership and it all, you know, kind of reaches a pinnacle when you actually do save someone's life and save the property. And man, there's no greater feeling that I've ever had. You know, it's pretty, pretty epic. So what about, we talked a little bit about philosophy and psychology and you said that kind of helped you through the mental health side of becoming stronger mentally, more mentally fit. Do you still have a draw to psychology, philosophy? Do you think it helps you as far as a leadership role? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I do. So for me, it, it started um, kind of after that incident. I want to say in the spring. And the first book that I read was Unbeatable Mind by Mark Devine. And when I read that book, it kind of almost reminds me of, of David Goggins can't can't hurt me, but it was just kind of finding strength within myself. And then as I continued to grow, I kind of wanted to learn more about myself. I read a book, Why People Die by Suicide. I read the book Mindset by I believe it's Carol Dweck, and I thought that there was a lot of a lot of growth and a lot of learning and understanding maybe why I make the decisions that I make. Carol Dweck was a growth mindset, right? That's a growth mindset. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. growing or kind of stationary mind. And that, that really fascinated me. And I was actually, so the whole reason I got into philosophy was I was reading this book for our work week by Tim Ferriss. And there was a quote in the book and it says, oftentimes we suffer more in imagination than we do in reality. Oftentimes we suffer more in, more in imagination than we do reality. And that was by Seneca the Great. And I said, I need to know who this, this Seneca the Great is. And he was a Stoic philosopher. And I said, what is, what is Stoicism? I, I had no idea. 
And so that summer, actually, I was on the Bark Eagle, my third class summer, uh, right after the small station Castle Hill. And I downloaded the book, A Guide to the Good Life by William Irvine. And that was the first philosophy book that I'd ever, ever read. And I just, I had to read it again. Right after I read it, I was like, I'm going to read this book one more time. And the things that I got out of it, just understanding what I can control and the things I can't control and really where I place my worries, as well as kind of, you know, being real with yourself. I found that that helped me grow as a leader a lot. I also began to stress less because I knew that if something was outside of my control, why, why spend the time and energy to get upset or get stressed about it? And then realizing that I'm the one that's in control of my emotions. And for instance, you could say anything you wanted about me, but I have the action and I have the ability to decide if that's going to make me happy, sad, or upset because nobody has that power over me but me. And kind of once I started getting in that mindset, I think it helped me as a leader too, because I think it kind of helped me keep, keep my pose. And, you know, I wasn't, wasn't a stressed out person. I didn't feel anxious. And it was a, it was a big part of my, of my learning. Stoicism is, uh, it's obviously it goes back a long time. Seneca six pack. I highly recommend the, and it's not a beer. Uh, the Sto- I think Seneca Stoic six pack is a, is a pretty good read. A lot of, he's got a, Seneca's got a, there's a lot of great stuff on, on Stoicism. A lot of, some people don't like Stoicism. They think it's too, it's too hardcore and it's not realistic. Like I said, I, I tend to really enjoy the, the writings of, of Seneca. Anyways, kind of go off on a little philosophy tangent. Leadosophy is the fusion of leadership and philosophy. So glad I like to talk a, a little bit about philosophy when I can. You, let's talk about leading self. Because that's it's part of the curriculum at the academy. Maybe we can get into the, the leadership at the the academy and the curriculum. What are kind of the cornerstones of, of the leadership curriculum academy? Can you kind of just what's it like? Maybe someone who might be thinking about going the coast coast guard academy. What's the leadership formal training look like? Informal training. Can you map that out a little bit? Absolutely. So you start obviously as a follower. Really, you start swab summer. You go to the academy in June and you do a seven week basic training, seven week boot camp, as you would. And you don't even have to think for yourself because they tell you exactly what to do. And you don't need to think, they just tell you and you do it. And then all of a sudden you're fourth class seven weeks later and people aren't telling you what to do all the time. And then you kind of start having to figure it out for yourself again. And you have to manage your own time because your cadre aren't leading or micromanaging every minute of your day, which is different. But basically, your fourth class year, you're kind of just responsible for yourself. You're trying to make it through. At the same time, every week they have indoctrination exams, and that's on Coast Guard knowledge. And at the end of the year, you take an indoctrination exam that's cumulative. That's all of it. And it's called boards. And that's how you get carry on. And for those that don't know, the entire fourth class year, you're squaring your corners, you're squaring your meals. You actually don't get social media, so you have to delete all your social media accounts. And so this really, is this is the equivalent of being a freshman, right, in college. Yeah, so this is your freshman year. Right. And you really only have each other because there's fr- these fraternization rules where freshmen can't be friends with the third class and upper class. So basically, you can only be friends with fourth class. So you can't go hang out with an upperclassman or a sophomore or relax with them. 
And so it really is only you guys as freshmen, but you're, the thing that's really unique about it is you're all going through it together. And nobody has it any easier than, than the person next to you, which is a really nice feeling. And so you kind of like start building those relationships. And you are a follower because you kind of just, you do what they say, but at the same time, that's kind of where the leading self happens is this is a time in your life where you're really focused on just yourself because you're not taking care of any divisions and you don't have other people that you really have to focus or, or you know, lead. And they want you to just learn and grow and get used to the, the atmosphere. As a third class, you kind of go into that mentor role for the fourth class. And this is kind of the first time where you realize that somebody below you is watching everything that you do. Because as a fourth class, you're looking at all the upperclassmen and the seniors are like God and goddesses, just what you look to be one day. And your third class are kind of mentoring you in a way so that you can pass your boards that are responsible for you. And that's kind of the first part of having responsibility is when you have a fourth class in your division that you need to make sure they're passing their boards. And if they're not passing their boards, it's not necessarily their fault, but they're going to be holding the third class accountable. So you're going to start getting that accountability aspect. And then going from your third class year to your second class year, that's kind of the big leadership transition at the academy. We take this class called LAMS, it's Leadership and Management School, and it's during our summer. And that's when we take, that's when we, uh, take our DISC profile and learn that. Actually, we take a class called Organizational Behavior and Leadership our sophomore year and start kind of learning these methods like Tuckman's model on, on followership and leadership and building teams and then Maslow's hierarchy. And then we do the values and action surveys so we know what we value and the things that really attract us and kind of develop or really make us who we are. But then going into our second class year, we're kind of more in that leadership role because you are at the cadre. So you're leading these fourth class now through that swab summer evolution. And that's where you're leading divisions for the first time. You're leading these fourth class and they're going to do what you say. You can say, you know, jump and they're going to say how high. And that's when you really, really realize that you have, you know, leadership or power or however power. you want to um, call it. And I think that's where the the followership to leadership role changes because this is the first time that you're really using your, your leadership dichotomy or your, you know, your framework. And the framework that I created, I created that as a third class before I was even a leader, really, within a position. And this is the teach framework, right? This is the teach framework. And I want to say that a lot of the framework came from my experiences as a fourth class and a third class was I would always write everything down, the good experiences and the bad, because there would be leaders here that I really liked. And I said, I want to be like them someday. And then there were some leaders that would just drain my energy. And I would come back to my room at the end of the day and be like, wow, like they really just are out for me. I want to make my life miserable. And I wrote down in my book, in my leadership book, you know, that I promised I would never be like that person or that I would never have those traits because I never wanted to make somebody feel the way that I felt from that person. And so that was something that really stuck to me. So when I was a second class, acting as a cadre with the swabs, I would remember my swab stories and my swab experiences when a cadre would make me feel bad with no purpose. And so through that kind of cadre summer, if there was a fourth class at the time of swab that wasn't doing what they're supposed to be doing, I would take that corrective action. 
I would let them know why I was going to be making them do push-ups or whatnot. And I would always do them with them. I would never make them do anything that I wouldn't do with them. And I would say, you know, you're not supposed to do that. They would get it. I would make them repeat it. Um, and I would say, you're going to do it again. And they'd be like, no. And then that's kind of where they learned their lesson. But it always had purpose behind it. So I would never just pick on someone because um, it would just be finding that discrepancy. So that was kind of first role in leadership. It was really awesome. Really a raw experience because you're going into this and they really will listen and do everything that you say. And then as a senior, while you're looking forward to graduation and might have senioritis, uh, really, really the thing is, is you're not leading a division during the academic year. So this past year, I've been in van maintenance maintenance division and I maintain the cadet vans, make sure that their insurance is up to date, get them oil changes, do the logs, the gas mileage, all of that. And all the mundane stuff that, but still has to get done, right? All the mundane, but has to get done. I'm in transportation department. So, but that's kind of, that's my academy experience and just some of the leadership that I've learned. So it, it seems to me listening to you talk about that experience transitioning from a fourth class cadet to now as a first class in your senior year, it's been this transformation of, of followership through the spectrum to, to leadership with even now, I'm sure you still have moments where you're in a follower's role and you have to embrace both of them, but definitely there is a clear glide slope, I guess, of, of going up towards, towards more leadership focused vice in the beginning, more followership focused. Is that accurate? I would say that's accurate. I would say too, um, my frameworks, not my framework, but for instance, my Myers-Briggs, I took that as a, as a third class cadet. And it's crazy just knowing how much I've changed from my sophomore year, my third class year to now being first class. Because when I took it the first time, I didn't have any leadership responsibility. I wasn't ultimately responsible for anyone besides my fourth class at the time, the fourth class in my division and just making sure that they were passing their indoctrination exams. And then taking it now as a first class, it's different because my role has changed. And so that kind of the way that I've been for the last few years has been constantly evolving and constantly changing. Can, is there one specific area of in the Myers-Briggs is a personality test, right? Personality test. Is there one specific area of the, of the Myers-Briggs or your personality that you that you really noticed changed is it specifically that you can talk about? So what changed the most actually was going from thinking to feeling. And a lot of that was because as a follower, I would just do, and that was kind of the thinking aspect, but then more so as a leader, and I guess with a follower too, I didn't want to be vulnerable. So going back to the vulnerability, I didn't want to be vulnerable with anyone. And there'd be no reason for me to just share with my first class or my second class, get kind of my experience because I figured, what if they judge me? What if, you know, they think differently of me? But then as I got into that second class and first class role, you know, I started showing my compassion and my empathy to my second class, my third class, my fourth class, and letting them know that I'm a real person and that they can really come to me anytime they're struggling or need help. And then this year, so November, my first class year, I wrote my story and I published it. And a lot of cadets have read that story now. And so I want to say that that's that's kind of the part that changed the most is, is that feeling and that kind of caring attitude of, of everyone in the core. And I feel that I'm in the position that I can, I can do that. And, and people will notice and people will say, wow, it's courageous for a senior cadet to be so vulnerable when that's not typically something that 
you know, a senior would do is be outright vulnerable and kind of their emotion and their stories. Right. I want to stay on, on the followership side for just a little longer because I want to unpack it a little more. First question to you, just kind of get your intuitive reaction. Do you think to, to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower? I want to say that it goes hand in hand because even my framework, it's not specifically gauged towards followers or leaders, but I want to say the word that kind of comes to mind is being coachable mm. because the thing is, is as a cadet, when I was playing baseball, I had to be coachable, but at the same time I would mentor little league, little league baseball players. And so I'm kind of a follower, but kind of a leader too. And within the, within the framework, and I think it's transfers. I think it goes both ways because your role is going to be constantly changing and evolving and you can't just be adept to one, but you need to kind of going back to some of the frameworks is just constantly be thinking about like, how can I be an effective follower and leader and kind of not be sheepish or, you know, not be someone that feels comfortable to speak up no matter the situation. Because I think no matter your position, everyone's kind of that natural or has a natural leadership ability in them. But at the same time, sometimes where I am, I'm a follower and a leader. And that's just kind of my take on it. No, that's good stuff. Let's let's get your, your advice. If if you had a a young man, young woman they were they were thinking about going to one of the service academies, Coast Guard Academy, we'll use that example since you're there. What would you tell them if you if you had to give them a a if you were to, to talk to them about being a good follower or being an effective you you talked about effective followership effective leadership I think effective leadership sometimes is kind of hard to define it's hard to pin that down but if you had to to mentor somebody who was coming into the Coast Guard Academy what would you talk to them about as far as effective followership goes what advice would you give them Well, I think the first thing. If somebody wanted to go to the Coast Guard Academy, the first thing I would say ultimately outside of that is you got to do it for yourself. So that's kind of something that, and the reason I said is that's something that sometimes happens is people are doing it for their mom or their dad or because it seems prestigious. But at the end of the day, those aren't going to be the things that carry you through here. It's going to be your own willpower and your own drive and, you know, being here for the right reasons. But secondly, one of the things that I would say is is talk openly to your leaders in your first class. It's going to be hard. And it is really hard as, as a swab is, you know, you're not going to be telling a cadre, you know, why are we doing this? What's the purpose behind this? But also to know as a leader that you want to effectively communicate to the, your swabs and to the forecast why you are doing what you're doing and what the purpose or mission is behind this so that they are there and thinking, are we wasting our time here? What is this? But to be able to have those conversations moving up the chain. And that's kind of something that I was maybe more passive about as a fourth class. But when I was at the Richard Etheridge this summer, as a follower, I was just trying to take in as much as I could and ask questions and be effective and say, you know, how can I best do my job or how can I best help the crew? Where am I, where am I needed at? And through that followership and just kind of taking, taking that initial lead as a follower and just acting behind they put me in leadership roles and I got to be a QMO and I got to do deck during, during an import evolution, during a special C detail. 
And I think a lot of that was because as an effective follower, I wasn't just, I wasn't just saying like, okay, thanks, like I'll do that. You know, I was asking, why are we doing this? What's the purpose in suggesting good ideas too? Because followers, you know, you got to think your natural leadership too in saying, you know, why are we doing this this way? And just as you kind of talk about too, is just being curious. Yeah. And I think you kind of said something profound about being able to ask why as a follower. A lot of people, you know, it's that intrinsic human curiosity, wanting to know why you're doing something. And I think from a leadership perspective, from the perspective of a leader, you have to ensure you're creating the environment where people are confident and comfortable to ask why. And there are some times where you just have to do something, right? There's going to be times where time is of the essence. We don't have time to have a big democratic discussion about what's going on. Uh, but then there are other times where maybe people are doing something and they don't really understand why. And once you get that why, it does kind of help. And I, I just like the fact you brought that up. That's something you were focusing on for the swap summer when you were in the, the leadership position. So that was good stuff, good stuff. Well, and one of the things I think about too, one of the things that I've learned is kind of the five whys. And that's really how you get to the root of anything too, especially for somebody's motivation is, you know, if you want to go to school somewhere, why? Well, because I like it. Well, why? Well, it's a good education. Well, why do you care about having a good education? Because I want to get a good job. And kind of just that's how you can unravel too. Not so much on the followership side, but that's just going towards deep in your understanding for someone's motive or why they actually want to do something. So it's called the five whys. Pretty, pretty interesting. But that's just getting the depth or adding the depth to any decision making. That is also very handy as far as a systems thinking approach to fixing processes trying to find the, the defection or the defectiveness in a, in a process is, is asking the why. It's, it's got a lot of import, both from a leadership perspective and a management perspective. So a little, little, bonus, little bonus there for bringing that up, the five whys. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's talk about what do we want to talk about here. Let's talk about your leadership framework. We'll, we'll start winding it down here. We've been going for, for about an hour. Let's kind of let's kind of wrap this up with with teach. What do you want to talk about teach? And what are some points you maybe want to to get out there for others so they can understand, which I think it's fascinating, you had to do this framework, your your sophomore year, right? I did. So a lot of this was from my framework, crazy to say, but as being a follower, through watching the leadership that I've kind of been under and, you know, collaborated with is this is taking out of experience without me actively using teach. It was more so seeing the upper class, seeing officers in the fleet and saying, this is the kind of leader that I want to be. And just part by part, taking all of that. And then that's kind of how I got to my framework. But so teach, uh, trust and take care of, enrich, engage and encourage. The A is act and achieve. C is consistency, communication and creativity. And then the final pillar at the bottom is honor. But I think with anything, so trust and take care of, we've kind of talked about the trust, but take care of your people. Um, as I said before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so when someone really knows that you care about them, then they're going to want to show up for you. Enrich, engage, and encourage is that when giving feedback, one of the best things i found too is it's always nice to encourage someone. Even if they're off the, off the path, they're not doing the right thing is encourage them, engage with them, and enrich their experience, is that everyone should always be able to bring something with them. 
because if you have an experience or you go to your first station and you feel that you didn't bring something with you, you know, in your tool bag, what, what was the purpose of that? And, and so that's kind of where you need to enrich your experience and engage. Act and achieve, this kind of goes to the creativity part too, kind of hand in hand. But as I always say, ideas are worthless. And so if you want to, if you want to do something and you're passionate about something, you got to act, you got to act on, you know, that desire or that idea that you have in your head and never be afraid to speak up because those ideas could be really great. And it doesn't matter who they come from, whether or not it's at the bottom of the chain or the top of the chain to be able to feel comfortable to act and achieve, you're going to first, you know, have to speak up and uh, talk on those ideas. Consistency, communication, creativity. So consistency is just, you know, showing up early all the time, having a good uniform, communication, just keeping, just keeping communication. And always, I want to say like one of the best parts is transparency, because you want to establish that why with, you know, your team. And you don't ever want to kind of be in that position where you're just having them do something and they don't know the why, or you're not communicating with them and something pops up and they had no idea because you weren't really transparent as a leader. It's kind of, you know, something in the Coast Guard is it's a need to know or you don't need to know. Right. But having that communication is really going to allow people to feel more comfortable and it's going to help them and help you. And it's just going to help kind of the dynamic of the team. And then creativity, kind of going back with the, the act on the ideas is just creative ways. I don't think there's one right way to do something. And for me, that would be as a leader saying, you know, if we have to say paint the boat, you know, you can come in on Monday and you guys can stay until 8 p.m. and grind it out Monday, Tuesday, and then, you know, you can go home early Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It doesn't have to be an eight to four. You don't need to waste people's time. Um, and let them kind of take the initiative because I think autonomy, mastery purpose, but autonomy is a big thing, is that I don't like to do things in just one way. And, you know, I think the poorest ex excuses, well, this is the way we've always done it. And oh, I hate that. My wife is cringing right now. She knows I hate that. Yeah, it, it's awful because it's like, well, what if I have a better way? What if I can do it in a more effective manner? So allow people to be creative. And I think that that's where you're really going to thrive. And I think, too, this pandemic, looking at big companies, Google, Amazon, um, Apple, having people work remotely, too, like allow people the autonomy and they're going to feel that they have a bigger intrinsic motivation to want to work for you. Because a lot of times it's not the money. People want autonomy in their life. And if you can give them autonomy in the military, it can be hard because the rank structure to you know justify that. But giving people autonomy is really important. And then last but not least, this is really important, is honor. And for me, it's it's honoring the uniform, honoring you know United States Coast Guard, because you're not representing just yourself. You're part of something bigger than yourself. So you're you're honoring everyone that has join the long blue line before you, everyone that served before you, that paved the way, the Coast Guard, the military, the United States. And then also lastly, you know, your last name, because you have two names on your uniform. It's the United States Coast Guard, and then it's for me, Roberts. And I want to honor that name, and you know, for my parents and everyone else. And that's kind of the selfless, selfless act, selfless service of the Coast Guard, just doing something bigger than yourself, but honoring it and, uh, you know, really taking pride in it because you know, especially for all branches, like people have died in that uniform. And so you're honoring, you're honoring them in the long blue line. And, and that's really important to me. 
That's awesome, man. That's uh, very profound. I like, I, I love diving into the world of, of leadership philosophy, especially. And I've always said, if you, you should always try to pen your leadership philosophy. And maybe people need to pen a, a followership philosophy as well. But I think by putting your ideas and thoughts on paper about how you want to lead, how you see yourself le- leading, and maybe some of the philosophy and psychology behind that, how you believe, what do you think about human motivation? How are humans motivated? Right? Because that goes a lot on how you lead. You know, do you think people are ex- extrinsically motivated? Or do you think that people can, they can determine their own motivation? You know what I mean? So I like the fact that you, you, you got, is everybody have to do that? Have to pen a leadership framework or come up with one? They do, yeah. So this is actually part of the OBNL curriculum as, as a third class. As I revise it two years later, not a lot of it's changed. But when you talk about the intrinsic, extrinsic motivation, uh, great book, Drive by Daniel Pink. I actually emailed him yes. and conversed with him a little bit about how how can you create intrinsic motivation in the military? If as a senior officer, you tell, say, a first-class cadet that something has to be done, and then you have to tell your division, how can you intrinsically motivate them to do something in that fashion? Because I think the greatest greatest story in that book is when there's a the little boy that didn't want to paint the fence and then somebody else wanted to paint the fence and he said no like i want to do it because he didn't want he didn't want him to paint the fence right and and i think that in order to be a good leader too people are going to want to follow you once you take the uniform off and sticks and carrots ultimately at the end of the day isn't going to work so <laughs> you got to find ways as a real leader be able to lead with your uniform off because at the end of the day when you get out of the coast guard your commanding officer or your xo once you take that uniform off you can be like cool great bye thanks for you know two years or you can be like wow i really look up to them and they're a great leader and i'm i'm really happy that you know i get to serve with them and under them well you talked about you know going down this road of intrinsic motivation you've written about finding your purpose finding your why you want to you want to talk about that a little bit? So that's a heavy. It's a it's a two heavy. More, two more important days and two yeah. important days in your life: the day you're born and the day you find out your why. Is, is that what's is that yeah. the quote? Yeah, so yeah that's the quote. That. That's the quote. Yeah. And so I think my why is is serving that bigger purpose and kind of doing that selfless selfless act to serve others because every day I feel I'm doing a purposeful job and right now I'm at the academy. So I'm not out in the fleet saving lives actively, but I'm preparing for that. I think, and you asked me this question too, I think that your purpose changes definitely throughout life. And when you get married, your purpose is gonna change. You know, you wanna be a good husband. When you have kids, your purpose is gonna change because you wanna be a great father. Uh, Great quote, the best gift that you can give your kids is to love your mother. Um, I love that one. But I think that your, your purpose is always changing. But in such, doing something meaningful every day random acts of kindness and there, it can be small purpose or big purpose but i think that as long as you're doing something to help others and this was a quote that dave uh, from angels 14 said to me is when you're not feeling that great about yourself help others and i think that's perfect because you know if you can't figure out your purpose or you don't know your why or you're struggling with that then don't focus on yourself help others uh, when i was in high school i did aftercare i worked with students and, and kids in elementary school that had special needs. I was a one-on-one provider. I did the, I did the aftercare program, the summer recaine program. I started babysitting and getting involved with, 
with their development. And I think that was, that was the kind of part that held me together was when I'm not feeling great about myself, I knew I was helping them and they were my motivation and they were my why. And I think it constantly changes, but you know, as long as you find something, your purpose, you know, just you think you, do you think you can help other people find their purpose from a leadership perspective? Discover. I think, I think a lot of people kind of know what they want to do. I think people are scared to act. And I think that, you know, in order to, what do you mean scared? Can you unpack that a little more? What do you mean scared to act? So I would say that like, for instance, failure, failure is, is a a great, a great thing. And I I love failure because I love just failing and learning, but a lot of people are, are scared to fail. And when you're scared to fail, you can't be open to your ideas. And again, kind of that creativity and acting on it in my framework is that if you have something that you really are passionate that you want to do in your life, you know, what's stopping you? And, and is it what other people think of you? There's, there's hundreds of people that have a perception of you and who you are as a person. The only one that matters is you. You know, what do I think of myself? What does Zone Roberts think? What does Zone Roberts want to do? And I think that you're going to find your purpose and your passion once you block out all that other stuff, because it's kind of that tunnel vision. You wouldn't believe how many times I was told that I wasn't going to be able to, to join the Coast Guard and I wasn't going to be able to go to the academy, but I wasn't going to let that define me. And very, right, right then and there in that instance, I could say my purpose isn't to be in the Coast Guard and to help others in that, in that fashion. But I had such tunnel vision that I knew that nobody was going to stop me. And I read articles about people that got disqualified and they couldn't join and, and kind of like Reddit posts about how it's a permanent disqualification. You know, you, you shouldn't even try. But I didn't stop and I wasn't scared to fail. And I didn't care if I spent one year of my life doing something and, and ended up not working out and I went to Marion, I would have found another, another passion. And it might not be right away. And, and that's okay. But if you're not feeling that great about yourself, help others. But just know, don't don't be afraid to to act on what you want and your passions. And it's never too late. Never too late. I I, I agree, man. That that's good stuff. Any final any final words of wisdom for maybe a cadet that's struggling or maybe they don't think they can get through it. What what's Dylan have to say as a senior? You're you're almost done with this journey of your of your your college career parting words of wisdom for someone who, you know, maybe two years behind you or they just can't see light at the end of the tunnel. So when I don't see light at the end of the tunnel, it makes me think of Swap Summer is I would look forward to every meal. And that was kind of how I got through the days. And then before I knew it, the weeks passed by. And then before I knew it, Swap Summer was over. And it's crazy because now I'm at the end of that four-year journey. And so a lot of times people, people will feel stuck. But if you can just kind of wake up every day and, you know, tell yourself that you're going to do just one thing and it doesn't have to be for yourself. It can be for another person. You can be going through a drive through and you can help someone through a random act of kindness. Is that if you just do one thing every day, whether or not that's reading. So right now, actually, I'm doing the gallon challenge, drinking a gallon of water every day and reading for at least 30 minutes. I haven't heard of that. The gallon challenge. It's awesome. Uh, it's really great. And I'm also, I'm also doing at least 30 minutes of cardio a day. I make sure that I get that in because you're never too busy. There's 24 hours in a day. And that's kind of where just, if you feel that you're struggling, don't, don't stay still, you know, get out of your room, 
go interact with people, get to meet someone, meet someone new, learn, learn about someone, be vulnerable, be open, tell someone that you're struggling, struggling, but do so with a positive mindset. Because I think that a lot of it and the only way that you're going to change is if you want to change and if you want to grow, because you can be stuck and you can find the zillion reasons why you're not where you are and you can blame yourself, you know, but at the same time, if you want to get unstuck, you know, you got to kind of take that, take that risk and take that challenge upon yourself that, you know, have a mantra, say, nobody can stop me. And if I want to do this and I'm going to do it and I'm great. I'm great. And just keep saying it. And as long as you keep saying it, then, you know, you'll be great. And you already are great, but just don't stop and just use that mantra. Find your mantra. Words of wisdom from Dylan Roberts. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. I, uh, I'm sure there's someone out there, man, that, that you'll speak to directly by saying that. Cause like I said, we all have days where it's just like, man, I just, it's a struggle. It's a grind. You know, so well, I think too, uh, one of the one of the things I'll add too is is if you have just one person in your life that you can be open and honest and vulnerable with, think of it kind of too as an accountability partner. Because, you know, sometimes we can't do life alone. You know, that's that's why I think relationships are people and people are the most important part of your life. Is that when you find and engage with people and you realize, you know, you have a, a big network of people that care about you, they're gonna help you and they're gonna lift you up. And don't ever feel that you have to take this journey alone ever. So I think for me, just having a great network and great kind of group of people here at the Academy, they're the ones that help me. And, you know, I can't say that there are days that go by and I don't struggle because I think everyone struggles no matter what, no matter how great you want to say you are, how happy you are. You know, everyone has their self doubts, but, you know, find people and surround yourself with people that are going to uplift you and that are positive because there's a saying that what you're, you're like the five people that you spend the most time with, something like that. So make sure too, if, if you feel down, ask yourself if you're around negative people. And if you are, then kind of change that group. Because once you start surrounding yourself with positive people and you change that positive mindset, you know, there's nothing you can't do. And, and if you have people that don't support you, then, you know, they shouldn't be in your life. But once you find those people that support you, you're really going to feel like there's nothing that you can't do. And if you fail, keep failing. You know, because that's that's the greatest part of life. It's it's the best lesson. No matter if it's a if it's a company or you, a startup or whatever, you lose money and just think of it as a lesson. That's all. That's good stuff, man. Good stuff. I want to end with a little bit of fun, a little bit of fun. I have some I have some main trivia. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So, any 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 final words before we get into into trivia? Any final alibis? Um, no final alibi. My laptop is at 3%. I don't have a charge. <laughs> That's cool. We'll make this really quick. All right. We'll go through, there'll be a little bit of geography, but we'll, we'll test your, uh, your, your main knowledge here. Okay. First one's super easy. Ready? Maine is most famous for this. Lobster. That's right. That's right. Good job. Very nice. Okay. Over or under Maine has over or under. 10,000 miles of rivers and streams over 32,000 miles of rivers and streams in Maine. I, I think Maine also has the longest coastline. If you were to kind of straighten it out because string, I think it's longer than California. Don't I quote think, me on it. No, I think it is. So I'm on visit Maine.net is the, is the website. So if any of this is inaccurate, you have to go to visit <laughs> Maine.net. That's the, that's where your issue is. But I do think they say the coastline is the longest. Okay. 
this group of people are believed to have discovered Maine thousand years ago? Well, Maine, uh, Maine was Massachusetts, so I don't know. We'll, we'll say the, the, the area. What group of people may have discovered Maine over a thousand years ago or approximately a thousand years ago? Famous group, pillaging, plundering, discovering, explorers. The Vikings. Uh. The Vikings are believed to have discovered <laughs> Maine. But yes, I agree. Maine wasn't, you know, Maine wasn't Maine a thousand Maine years ago. Maine. So, okay. Over or under Maine state population over or under 5 million people? It's under. 1.3 million, man. That's not a lot of people in Maine. Yeah, it's not that populated. I think I know that just because of the election. I knew how many people voted and kind of yeah. population. So yeah, that's, that's probably. That's no fair. You knew that one going on. <laughs> what is the Maine state animal? It's uh, a bird. It's a chickadee. That is the state bird? The state animal is a moose. Moose, yeah. It is the moose. Since we're on, what would be, do you know what the main state fish is? Is it a, a trout? It's a landlocked salmon. Landlocked salmon. That was my second yeah. guess. Okay, just two more questions and then we'll okay. wrap it up here. Not right. 1% in case I lose you. We'll do one more question. Here we go. You ready? Yep. What is the highest mountain in Maine? Mokotan. Over or under 10,000 feet? Under. 5,268 feet. Good job, Dylan. Thank you. Very nice job. Dude, it was an honor to, to talk leadership with you, talk life with you, philosophy, psychology. I wish you the best. Enjoy these last couple months that you have. Make the most of it. And please stay in touch. We'd love to maybe have a conversation down the road, maybe once you get to your new unit or whatever it is. So Absolutely. I'll be looking forward to it. Thank you again for having me. You're welcome. Remember, Leadosophy is about using the tools of philosophical thought to deepen our understanding of leadership. I think we did that today with Dylan. Dylan, we'll catch you next time, man. Thanks for coming in. Thanks again. All right, bye. Thanks for watching and listening to another episode of Leadosophy. If you liked what you heard today, hit that subscribe button and check out leadosophy.com and learn more about Tim's ideas on philosophy and leadership. We'll see you next time.